Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted critical care teams all over the country. It has forced us to learn, adapt, and innovate at a breathtaking pace. Over the last several months, we have discussed new drugs, novel therapeutic approaches, and ventilator management strategies. However, the most vital source of innovation and success has been adapting to COVID-19 with new ICU workflows. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss innovation and care through the lens of process and workflow. Our guest is Dr. Lara Rock. Dr. Rock is a pulmonologist and critical care physician at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, Massachusetts, and an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. She's also faculty for the Center for Medical Simulation and is trained as a vital talk instructor. Her areas of interest include how emotion impacts cognitive processes, debriefing clinical work, and how do we teach and perform difficult conversations in critical care. Today, she will discuss with us a workflow innovation called Circle Up. Laura, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I would like to start with a brief take on innovation. I find that most people, especially during COVID-19, when they think of innovation in medical practice, are thinking of new modes of ventilation, new antibody cocktails, novel, novel drugs, a vaccine. Yet you are interested in study and apply other types of innovations that I think are much more pervasive and more important, perhaps, in our workflow. How do you view innovation in general? You know, I think I used to share that same bias that what I'm talking about or the work that I do isn't really that sexy compared to being an expert in ECMO or talking about ARDS and ventilator modalities. And ultimately, I've realized that um, if we don't have uh, an opportunity to reflect and improve what we do every day, then all of these other interventions really won't make uh, much of an impact. So I, I've actually been kind of blown away that in medicine, especially in a high stakes, incredibly fast um, and rapidly changing and evolving place like critical care, that we don't naturally and routinely take the time to learn from our daily work. And, and I believe that, that that is something that a lot of clinicians fail to see at, at many points in their career. I remember that the aha moment came to me when I, being an attending, became a black belt in the Lean Six Sigma and asked the question, why do we round the way we round in the ICU? And the answer I would get most often is because that's the way we round it before. And that's the way I was taught to round. And it really struck me that a process that is so important for what we do on a daily basis hadn't been re-examined, at least where I was, in a long time. And we really didn't ask, how could we do this better? We do it every day. It impacts every patient. Shouldn't we be really thinking of how do we design this to achieve the goals we want in a better way? And how do we keep moving it forward? And, and I sense that a lot of what you study really falls in that category of innovation. Yeah, isn't that fascinating? 
Um, I, I got really interested in debriefing um, for a few reasons. One was because I do a lot of work in simulation-based medical education, and just my firsthand experience at seeing the impact of different professions sharing their perspective after a simulated crisis. Um, it just, it, it was so impactful, and I, I just thought we're really missing an opportunity if we're expecting every professional to go into a simulation and take a several hour long or day long simulation course, because that's just not, we don't have the resources for that or the time. So we need to find a way to bring these opportunities for perspective sharing and learning into our clinical environments. And then I also had a few aha moments of realizing how debriefing could have changed the ability of people to work. So um, I was in a code a few years ago. Um, I walked into a code where the anesthesiologist was telling a nurse to push epi, which was appropriate at that moment. And the nurse kept saying, well, we don't have a central line. And the anesthesiologist said, well, we don't need a central line. We have access, push the epi. And the nurse was really hesitant and it actually delayed the, the epi for the patient. And I threw in an IR and we moved everything to that. So it sort of became mood and the patient survived. So we really didn't, there wasn't really much of a discussion about that moment. But I learned later from talking with the nurse and the doctor that a couple of years earlier, that same nurse was with the same doctor and she pushed epi for a patient in which it was appropriate and the patient survived the code but lost her hand because she had um, severe vascular disease and she had never talked about it and she had never really debriefed that experience. And so here she was, a very um, experienced and excellent critical care nurse, really unable to um, perform her job the way she had before because of her emotion around causing this patient harm, um, which she had taken personal responsibility for. And I think that there are a lot of situations like that where we just never really talk through something that happened or don't even really understand necessarily all the elements clinically or emotionally that um, sort of were involved in the experience so we don't allow it to inform what we do next. And then there are a lot of situations where I think there's just a lot of confusion that we don't take the time to sort of unpack how, did, how was our communication um, affecting the experience for this patient. Um, so one was kind of a silly experience where um, my mother was a patient and she had this huge chart and on the top of the chart there was a post-it that said no type and screen. She was going in for surgery and so she was in pre-op and this post-it said no type and screen. And in the next hour, four different nurses and assistants came and grabbed the chart and said, oh, no type and screen, I guess we don't need one. Um, I was gonna draw blood, but I don't, I don't need to. And then the next person came and said, oh, it looks like there's no type and screen, I better draw this and put in an order. And then the next one thought it meant that my mother was refusing blood products. So I was there and I kept saying to the people, I really think you should check the chart or talk to your team because I don't think you're all on the same page about what that post-it means. And it just made it, you know, sort of reminded me like we don't routinely have these kinds of conversations to get on the same page. Yeah, and I think it speaks to that that idea that it's not what we say, it's what people hear. So I guess it's not what we write, it's what people read. That that was the case for, for your mom's chart. But it's a common example that I'm sure happens every day in hospitals across America and the world. Right, and what if she had no type and screen ordered and she had a catastrophic bleed in the OR 
and they had no blood for her. I mean, that didn't happen, but that it's, it's a simple um, and very innocent mistake that could have been catastrophic. So we, we touched on two critical elements of high-performing teams, and I wanted to dig a little bit deeper there. And in one of the pieces that you wrote recently for Catalyst, I found a quote uh, from another article that talks about holding ourselves to high standards while holding each other in high regard. But I think it really opens the door to what in my humble opinion is the most important aspects of great teams, which is psychological safety and communication. Can we dig a little bit deeper into psychological safety and what it means to you, what it means to a team, how you think about it in the ICU where teams are changing constantly. For example, you walk into a code, it's a different team every time there's a code. There's elements of our team that are the same, but the, rea the reality is that we're teaming up with people on a, on, a, on a regular basis in the ICU. So how do you think about psychological safety and how it impacts the performance of that team? Uh, so I really learned a lot about psychological safety from reading Amy Edmondson. Um, her work, um, she really popularized that term. I can't remember if she coined it, but she writes a lot about psychological safety. And I think the way she would define it as um, is feeling uh, that you won't that you won't feel humiliated or shamed for raising a concern that you that your um, perspective is valued and that um, there's an invitation to speak up and participate in the conversation. Um, and I I think that without that we really are not able to tap into the strengths and uh, skills of every team member. So, I mean, we know that speaking up is really hard and that um, I mean, there's a lot of literature on speaking up and that uh, sometimes even in a, in, a, in a moment that could actually be life and death defining for a patient, subordinates will feel um, a lack of psychological safety and won't speak up even if they think um, they know something that could save the life of a patient because there's so much emotion around being wrong and and feeling like, well, what if what if I, you know, what if I'm wrong? What if they probably already know what I was going to say? Um, and so it's this, it's just fundamental to a team functioning well. And um, I, as you mentioned in the introduction, I have been teaching for Center for Medical Simulation for at, since I participated in my first course with them over 10 years ago. And the work at that organization is really foundational. Um, in uh, this pairing of curiosity and respect. So the idea is communicating, teaching and learning from a stance of respect and curiosity, where you have high standards and you also have high regard for your learners and for your colleagues and for your patients. And I, I think that this concept was really transformative for me because I already um, felt really drawn to difficult conversations and, and building trust with patients and family. But ultimately, our patients and family, family members can't really trust us if we don't convey a sense of trust for each other. And so, I mean, I think we know that when a patient or family member senses conflict among the team, it's incredibly stressful for them. And when they feel a sense of mutual support and um, uh, sort of a, you know, a a connection among the team, I think it really puts them at ease knowing that the team will communicate well to give them their best work. So uh, to me, psychological safety 
um, uh, for our learners, for our patients, but also for each other, brings out, it allows us to bring out our best work. And I think an important point, uh, Laura, to, to emphasize is that, especially in the in ICU, but for any team, I, I believe this is true, that it's not only speaking up when perhaps some uh, there's a safety event uh, about to occur, and the most uh, dramatic example would be in the OR, which has happened historically multiple times, the surgeon's about to amputate the wrong leg and nobody mm-hmm. speaks up, right? That's right. like the, the extreme epi- a- a- example. I also think it's about feeling comfortable and safe to just suggest an idea, no matter how stupid it might or might not be, it might work. And this applies specifically to COVID. Uh, somebody at one point said, why don't we put the, the IV poles outside of the room? And I'm sure a lot of people thought about that and didn't say anything because they didn't feel it would be safe to suggest that but somebody suggested it and then a lot of ICUs were doing that and it just helped minimize the amount of, of entrances that the nurse, nurses had to that room, which may or may not be a, a good thing. We still don't know that, but, but it's just an example of how having that safety to speak up and share what might be an idea without fe- feeling any repercussions is really uh, important on both extremes when things are very stressful, but also when we're just trying to improve our daily, our daily work. Absolutely. And actually, I mean, I actually think another nice side effect of moving the IVs, um, the pumps, is that can you imagine being next to that loud beeping alarm every time there's a, you know, air bubble or, you know, the bag is empty and you're a patient trying to sleep or heal. Um, but no, I think that uh, that's, that's, a, that's absolutely right. And even if, even if people don't like the idea, just saying, huh, I'm not, you know, I have reasons that I think that might not work, but I'm so glad you brought it up. It's such a, it's such a interesting, you know, innovation. Um, it'll encourage people to, to be willing to speak up the next time, even if you don't embrace their idea. So I think that um, it's the way we receive efforts to speak up that creates a culture of being willing to speak up. The other, and the other part about it that's really um, fundamental is that it allows people to have some agency and be, and participate in problem solving, which really um, gives people more of a sense of purpose in their work, which we know is fundamental to feeling joy. Yeah, it, it speaks to the idea of we manage people, the best we can hope for is compliance. If we empower people, we can hope for engagement, which like you, you stated is I think the, the, the most important element to find joy in our work is to be engaged in what we're doing and making a difference for others. Could you comment a little bit on a psychological well-being obviously related to this but i think it's a little bit different in terms of what we mean by that and i think it's an important um principle since when we talk about circle up there is a component of circle up that that really focuses on this as well sure uh i am glad you asked this because i think there's been so much emphasis in the medical and lay press about resilience and if I read one more article about drinking kale milkshakes or doing yoga, I, I think I'm going to have to write an article about how our, <laughs> our focus should not be on individual resilience, although all those things are lovely. And if you enjoy yoga and kale, then you should do those things. But there's too much emphasis on, on the individual clinician being responsible for their wellness. And I think strategies that focus on the individual clinician are missing an opportunity and an obligation because, you know, um, we as an organization 
can change the environment and promote wellness by the way that we interact and value each member of the team. So culture centers around people and relationships and empowerment. And um, that really has nothing to do with putting this pressure on individuals to um, beef up their own resilience. And I think that you know, this, the concept of burnout tends to focus too much blame on an individual and their personal qualities of grit and resilience instead of um, you know, finding prevent preventative methods and peer support that isn't relegated to fixing broken positions, but rather is about how do we change our culture to promote wellness through the way we do our work. And I have found uh, personally that especially during COVID that people who are closer to COVID are usually more resilient because they're forced to to bound with others, but also more important, like you said, as a leader, but also as a team member, if you worry or if you do things to try to promote the well-being of others, it has a magical effect on your own well-being. And that's the, the secret sauce, right? When everybody's doing what they can to help each other, all of a sudden, everybody's feeling a lot better about the situation and understands that they're in it together. And it really creates a, a bonding that is, is hard to, to see when things are, are very quiet or going as usual, but are very evident when you have a crisis. Yeah, I, th I think that's true. And I think it's easier to do than we think, but it's not, it, it, isn't, um, it isn't a natural part of our culture or it hasn't been um, you know, really incorporated into our cultures and our, and our units. The other component that I believe be, is essential for, for team functioning at a high level is communication. And a lot of people have studied this in different ways. And we talked about uh, Amy Evanson's work on psychological safety, but also she has pointed out in medical teams, and this has been replicated by the MIT Media Lab, that it's not necessarily the content of the communication, but the form that people communicate is very important. And probably what, when it reflects a, an equal exchange between team members, probably it's a representation of psychological safety to some extent. But can you talk a little bit about communication in terms of form versus content and how that's important for teams? Um, yeah, I, I think that you know what we remember most when we um, have interactions is the way that we feel when we walk away. I mean, I, I think, you know, if you think back on, on the teachers that have made the biggest difference in your life or even relationships that you've had, um, I think that, you know, we remember less about the content and more about the, the interpersonal part of the interaction. And I've always, I've always tried to teach my kids, you know, when they were younger, you know, you can tell someone's a good friend by how you feel after you've been with them. And I, you know, I think that, that um, we also, because of this sort of, I, you know, I have this like overriding principle of emotion before cognition. And I think, you know, when we're, when we're preoccupied in, in our brains about, you know, should I trust this person? How does this person make me feel? Even if you're doing it unconsciously, it kind of minimizes your bandwidth for the cognitive portion of the conversation. So when, you know, when you feel at ease and you feel welcomed, um, and you feel that psychological safety of, you know, your opinion is valued, then it, it really kind of allows you to um, relax and participate more fully in what you're trying to do. 
Is that, I'm not sure if that answered your question. No, but. it is, and it's going in that direction. And I think it's going to be also important when we tar start talking about circle up and what we expect from, from the team in terms of communication. So this might be a perfect uh, point to, to just ask you, what is circle up from a very high level? <clears throat> so circle up is a series of interactions team-based interactions that provides a framework for regular time, a regular time and place for problem solving and connection. And um, this started with um, a pilot study, at least for me, it started with a pilot study last year where we, um, we did daily debriefings in one of our ICUs. Um, and it was funded by Crico. We did a 10-minute debrief at the end of every shift for six weeks. And that um, obviously was pre-COVID. And then when, um, when we started working in, in the COVID era, a bunch of us through Center for Medical Simulation and other affiliated groups put together this process of a briefing at the beginning of a shift, check-ins throughout the day, and a debriefing at the end of a shift, which are all very brief interactions, but, but really change a culture and provide a framework for this combination of problem solving and connection. And um, so it makes these interactions that are so fundamental to changing culture and to bringing out our best a regular part of the day. And where does the name come from? It seems like a, like a sports analogy. Yeah, it is. I mean, I found myself using the term circle up just when I wanted the group, when, it, when I wanted the team to just come together for a few minutes, I'd, I'd say, hey, everybody circle up. Um, and actually, I think um, our, from our group, Chris Rusin, who's the senior author on that paper, I think he is the one who applied it to this um, framework. But it, it is um, meant to um, uh, it, it is meant to invoke sort of a team huddle, and it's it's kind of a pep talk um, and a brief meeting to coordinate plans, to connect, and kind of inspire for the shift, and also um, offer an opportunity to reflect. So, and I also like that, that the name literally um, promotes forming a circle because I, I can talk about, you know, some of the elements that I think make these interactions most successful. But one is that you can literally see each other and hear each other, which I think is often not the case in a large um, ICU where there's a lot of, you know, ambient noise and people are on computers and some people are sitting and some people are standing. And um, so I think, you know, it doesn't literally have to be a perfect circle, but creating a physical, um, a physical connection that allows for this sort of emotional connection and um, logistical connection of, of talking through work and solving problems together. Before we dive into the framework and the specific components and best practices, how does Circle Up uh, differ? How is it different from ICU rounds, for example? So, I, I mean, there are a lot of regular um, team conversations that um, we could compare this with. So team rounds, at least in our institutions, usually um, involves the medical staff, so the attending physician, and if we have fellows and residents, um, being there for the entire round, you know, rounds experience, which often lasts for several hours. And the nurses come in and out depending on whether we, you know, which patient we're discussing. 
We are also often joined by um, pharmacy and respiratory therapy um, come in and out depending on if, you know, if it's relevant for that patient. But rounds is a conversation about patients. We're trying to coordinate the care for that patient for the day. Um, we also have other team-oriented conversations, like in our institution, we have a morning huddle where we, in 10 minutes, quickly go through sort of an overview of the unit, which patients are going to be leaving for procedures, which patients need physical, physical therapy or social work or case management. Um, but the main difference is that those are conversations about patients. The circle up conversations are largely about the team itself. And I think this is what makes it, what makes it novel. We're, we're promoting a conversation that's really about having the team connect with one another and the team to um, make, make plans together, anticipate challenges together. And then at the end of the day, to reflect together and sort of possibly have a giant exhale together after a tough day. So it's really a shift from only needing to talk about patients to actually talking about their own interactions, their own feelings, their own experience of the day and where they did well and where they could, where they see opportunities for improvement. We also um, have a lot of conversations obviously among different professions sort of in silos. So nurses may talk to one another about um, areas of improvement or things that they're frustrated by, but those might not get communicated to the entire team. They might have ideas for um, implementation that like never really get heard by everyone else. And similarly, doctors have a lot of conferences and may have M&Ms that, I mean, in our institution, nurses do come to our critical care M&Ms, but not that many nurses. It's usually the leadership. So I think we're having a lot of siloed conversations. The point of Circle Up is this is an interprofessional, interdisciplinary conversation that includes everyone working together um, to offer care for our patients. And when I say everyone, I mean including the secretary or unit coordinator, the, the chaplain if they're around. Um, sometimes, I mean, I can give you one really beautiful example of we were starting a Circle Up um, briefing in the beginning of a shift during our COVID surge in the spring and the housekeeper happened to be behind me emptying the trash. And I said, hey, why don't you, you, know, why don't you join our conversation? And I, I said, you know, I realized I've seen you here for the last several months and I don't know your name. And she told me her name, it's Tiru. And um, everyone on the team absolutely turned around and gave her a standing ovation and said, we couldn't do any of this without you. And you know, it was a really beautiful moment to um, have everyone come together and appreciate, you know, the work of someone who doesn't normally necessarily get noticed or appreciated. So it's really um, not about patients. And I, and I can talk about how in, to be more efficient, the morning um, briefing or the morning huddle can be sort of merged so that you aren't adding an extra meeting onto a busy workday. But for the most part, the focus on, of these conversations is about the team. That that is a, a great distinction, in terms of uh, this is about the team and how the team functions and how the team is doing as opposed to individual patients, and that would be a big difference with ICU rounds, and like you mentioned with sign out that might be physician to physician or nurse to nurse, it, the circle up once again is not about that individual patient but about the team but also has a much more multidisciplinary nature and it, and it seems that the circle up is even broader 
in its representation of who works in the ICU than ICU rounds. ICU rounds, at least in our in our programs, have become very, very multidisciplinary, and more and more disciplines seem to be to be uh, joining as we move forward, including families when they were allowed in, in in the units. But this really is more about the the team and having everybody who's working there. So that that is a, a great uh, I think point to to emphasize. So. Tell us a little bit about the framework. Uh, what are the main elements? And then maybe we can dive into each one of those elements uh, in a little bit more detail. Sure. So uh, there are three main activities, briefing, peer check-ins, and debriefings. The briefing is, is really um, an opportunity to connect, to literally see um, who you're working with that day. And in a busy ICU, you might actually have people on your team that you've never met before. Um, it sets a tone for the shift. It's an opportunity to coordinate care and have a sort of team situational overview for the day. Um, and would you, like, would you like me to kind of give an example of how it might yeah, sound? Yeah, please, please. So I always start with introductions, partly because I'm terrible with names and I think that, um, you know, there's always somebody that if you just say, does everybody know each other, then everyone will kind of nod and actually, once again, feel uncomfortable speaking up because they might not need, know the name of the respiratory therapist who's been working next to them for a year and they feel like it's, you know, too embarrassing to admit that. <laughs> so <laughs> it starts with, you know, hey, everybody, let's just take a few minutes to connect um, for the shift. Um, I'm Laura, I'm going to be sort of leading this brief conversation. It doesn't have to be me, it doesn't have to be a doctor, it could be anyone on the team that's comfortable in that role. Um, and then everybody says their name, and, and then during COVID, people would often say where they normally work, because people were pulled to the unit who don't normally work in a unit, so I think that helped people know one another and feel a little bit um, like they, they could sort of uh, say out loud that they're not used to being in the ICU, and I think, you know, it doesn't take long. Um, and then uh, sort of an invitation to speak up throughout the day. So I'm going to be like, we really want to hear from you. If you notice anything um, or if you're concerned, um, please let us let me know or let you know someone else know who can share it with the group. Um, quick updates. So uh, just so everybody knows, we have new ventilators today, but they're old ones. You're not used to seeing um, this dial on the side where the oxygen um, level is actually kind of hard to read. So um, we're just going to quickly review like where you can read that. So it might be an update like that, or it might be, you know, we have, um, uh, you know, we only have two respiratory therapists today because somebody called out sick. So we're, this is how we're gonna adapt. Um, I might raise some concerns or I, I can ask the group, have you heard, you know, were anything, um, anything you wanna share with the group about um, any anticipated challenges today? And then um, an encouragement to support one another. So. Um, hey, you know, this work is hard, um, please just, you know, let me know or, or talk to, you know, someone you trust um, if you're having a tough day or if you just need a break. Um, we really want to support each other. Um, and I would often during, especially during the COVID surge, I'd say I really want to remind you that you cannot go in to help a patient without, without um, proper PPE. So even if a patient disconnects from their ventilator, you cannot go into the room until you protect yourself. I know that it's not your identity, it's not your nature, but you have to protect yourself so you can continue to protect and save others. And I, I've said that every day because I think that's such an important um, 
you know, it's such an important thing to reinforce because it's just not, you know, we all have this identity of like everything for the patient. So it's that kind of thing that, you know, the whole conversation would just be like sometimes five minutes. And if we wanted to pair it with a morning huddle where we would quickly review the needs for each patient for that day, it would probably be more like 10 or 15 minutes, but it was pretty short. And that is a very important point because every provider where they, a bedside provider where a physician, an APP, a nurse, an RT feels that their day is already flooded with shallow work that takes them away from the patient. And every time you, you, you introduce something new, people roll their eyes because they just think it's another click on the EMR or another meeting I have to be and just adds to my, to my daily work. But this can be done in a very short period of time. It can be incorporated. And we'll talk about that a little bit later into what we do on a regular basis. But what done systematically, as you'll share with us later, can have quite profound results on the team. And that really is 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 the message. Yeah, I mean, so, even in a short time, I will um, tell you later, like even in a short time, we had pretty profound, um, even clinical change outcomes. But but even immediately, I mean, people told me, I mean, they loved it. And nurses who were on units where they weren't doing this asked if they could start doing it. it and it became like the nurses actually started doing it on weekends, even, you know, because we didn't include weekends in our study. Um, they just really appreciated the connection. Nice. And briefing also can be a circle up prior to a procedure. If you're going to intubate a COVID-19 patient, especially at the beginning, I think a lot of teams recognize that having a briefing up front and discussing the plan, roles, questions, reminding people about proper PPE was probably a good idea. So it doesn't only have to be at the beginning of the shift, but clearly for, from the circle up concept, it's setting the tone and starting the shift uh, uh, on, the right, on the right track. So what's the second component? It's peer support, right? So the second component is about peer check-ins. So, um... It's, this is really an unscheduled reminder to check in with the people that are on your team. This, some people really don't need this reminder. I mean, uh, our nursing director at the MICU at VADMC, Kristen Russell, she just, you know, she's just one of these people that loses incredible confidence and approachability and compassion. And I think, you know, she doesn't need to read this article. <laughs> A lot of people, I think, do naturally um, create such a, a, a sense of psychological safety and approachability that they might not need this framework. But I think for a lot of people, especially if they're used to a more technical, more um, kind of intervention-oriented um, and sort of less communal atmosphere, it's an incredibly important reminder to check in with each person. We know from research on peer support, particularly by um, Joe Shapiro, um, that uh, clinicians who are hurting would rather talk to their colleagues than to health professionals. And research on um, burnout and even severe mental health and, and suicidality shows that when um, mental health interventions, burnout interventions um, are offered, uh, you know, a significant percentage, over 40% of people who are suffering won't take advantage of them. So again, I think rather than pushing the onus onto individuals to seek and get their own help um, or to you know, sort of work on their own individual resilience or burnout issues, when we create a culture that is about um, 
you know, a community that creates a community that makes it okay to have emotions, to make it okay to need to check in or take a quick break. We're going to create an environment where we can identify the people that need, that may need help that we might not even know about. And we're going to um, hopefully pr provide um, an environment where, where we can offer that support to one another. I mean, I also think that, you know, if you check in with people emotionally, they're also going to be more likely to speak up about other things. So, you know, if you can't say to the team, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really struggling today because my cat died and I'm really distracted and preoccupied, um, then you may not, you also may not, you know, be willing to say, I can't remember if I gave this patient's medication or not. Can you help me like check through my steps? because I am just a little distracted today. I mean, so I think it's sort of this, you know, it, it, these aren't, um, these aren't we're, we're not promoting um, patient safety and isolation. We're thinking about humans who have human flaws. And so when we, you know, when we offer the kind of um, support and a framework that allows people to be human, then we can, you know, again, bring out our best work. I believe also that the, an important aspect to talk about these micro uh, check-ins is that people sometimes confuse being deliberate with not being authentic. And uh, that seems to be a barrier for a lot of people to trying to do things that they don't usually do. I believe that you can be very authentic and be deliberate about saying, I'm gonna ask several people today how they're doing and how I can support them. And once you establish that routine over several days, it becomes second nature and it's something that you just do. Uh, could you talk a little bit about how you would um, encourage somebody who's never done one of these micro check-ins, new, new attending, who's trying to be a better team member, how would you, how would you, you counsel them in terms of this is what you should do today to, to, to support your peers? Yeah, well, first I want to make a comment about authenticity. Um, you know, if you don't actually care about people, then you, you know, circle up is not going to work for you. <laughs> you actually have to care and you you can't fake caring. You, I don't think you can fake empathy and you, you might be able to learn some steps to make you, you know, you look empathic. But I think, um, you know, you, you actually have to care and be curious to to create an environment of you know, caring and mutual support and curiosity. So um, assuming that you have that, um, and it's not your nature to do these sort of um, interpersonal check-ins, first of all, I'm, very, I'm, very, I'm a big fan of just being really transparent um, and I'm a pretty casual person. So I, if that were me, I'd probably say, you know what, I'm trying a new thing. It's not really my, you know, it's not, I feel a little awkward doing this, but so bear with me. Um, I might come by and just, you know, check in with you today and say, how's it going? Like, um, and, I, you know, so I would probably be upfront about that. Um, you know, maybe that's too much of a stretch. If you're not comfortable doing it, maybe you're also not comfortable <laughs> saying that out loud. But I think, you know, it has to be your style. Uh, it has to be something that you are comfortable with or it won't work. So I do think that you can take these concepts and think about, well, you know, what am I comfortable with? You know. Um, and if it's really awkward for you, then maybe you should, and you care about it, you could delegate it to someone who, who does feel comfortable checking in. And, um, and that doesn't mean you don't care. It just maybe, you know, 
maybe it just means that you might not be the most approachable person or that it's, you know, it's something that you're working towards as opposed to feeling like you have to take on this whole framework in one day. Yeah. But I, but I think that sometimes the biggest barrier is just, is just getting started and, uh, uh, and doing it. And once you do it, you find out your style, but you also find that it has tremendous value for the team, for yourself and can make a, a true difference. I'm also I'm also a big believer in redos. Like if you're if you're the boss and you you know go around to the you know to the team some, at some point during the day and say hey I'm checking in and they say I can't take you know one more family member screaming at me and you say oh you know oh you're great you'll be fine you always you know rise to the top and then you realize like that is a non-answer <laughs> that is not supportive that is not really um, like allowing them to have the emotion they express. You can say, hey, you know what? I'm not sure I like the way I, I said that. Um, that sounds really tough. Like, can you, you know, tell me what's going on? Do you wanna, you wanna talk about it? Or, um, you know, I mean, I, so it's, it's okay to realize that you don't have the perfect answer or the perfect, you know, response and to just kind of laugh at yourself and, and try it a different way. Yeah. It's demonstrating vulnerability and humility. I want to go on a little bit of a, it's not really a tangent, but a, a, a different direction within this peer support component based on something that, that I read uh, that you wrote that really highlighted something that I frequently do, which <laughs> is I, I, I respond to emotion with facts and uh, my kids have been uh, very prominent in pointing that out to me, but also I do it at, at work. And uh, could you talk a little bit about that and the give a framework and how you can use that when somebody says such something that's really emotional to you and what's the best way to, to think or respond to that? Sure. Um, so I, um, I learned a lot about uh, responding to emotion from the um, Vital Talk um, organization. I'm a Vital Talk instructor and, and Bob Arnold was an, a mentor of mine. So a lot of my thinking about this came from Bob Arnold and Tony Back and, and their um, faculty. And um, the, so the, the concept of don't answer feelings with facts is, I, you know, I think this is really true for all of us. And even though I wrote that article, sometimes I still have to remind myself. So um, it's really hard to do. It's very simple, but it's, it's not that easy to do. And the idea of give is it's a mnemonic. And actually, I normally hate mnemonics because I don't remember what they stand for, but I, I like mine because um, I think if you don't remember what it stands for and all you remember is that when you encounter emotion, you should give, that's probably enough because the idea is just giving over to the emotion that's present and not feeling like you should provide information and or fix the emotion. So, you know, I think as doctors, we like to fix things and we like to solve problems and we do that with emotion too. So a typical response to um, uh, an express, expression of emotion, especially if it's subtle, is to provide information. So it might sound something like this. Um, well, what do you mean the antibiotics aren't working? Um, just, you know, you have to have a solution. The sepsis has to get better. I'm just change antibiotics. And the answering feelings with facts response would be, well, we had an ID consult and they, you know, they did, did all the sensitivities and we know the antibiotic was right, but um, you know, sorry, it's just it's not working. 
or maybe an example that comes closer to home would be like, um, mom, I'm not going to school today. I have no friends. Well, of course you have friends. You were just invited to Sally's birthday party. So, um, you know, those are false reassurance. They're not, uh, well, the first one isn't false reassurance. It's just information, but you're really not sort of acknowledging the emotion that's present, validating that the emotion is, you know, allowed and that, that it's normal and that, you know, it's okay to have emotion and then possibly um, aligning or, you know, supporting or exploring the emotion to understand it better. So, and this happened, um, I wrote an, another blog um, about um, answering feelings with facts or, or how to respond to emotion in COVID, which um, I can share with you, which was on the Life in the Fast Lane blog. And um, it sort of used examples of like, what do you mean I can't come see my dad? I want to talk to your supervisor. So the, you know, answering feelings with facts would be like, well, you can talk to my supervisor, but it's not going to make a difference. As opposed to, this is really awful. I, you know, I actually think this is the hardest part of all the care that that we do. And I, I wish so badly you could come in and I'm, you know, I would be so, I wouldn't even know how to deal with not being able to come see my family. Um, and, you know, let's talk about maybe some things that we can do or, you know, help me understand how I can provide some connection for you, even if you can't come in or something like that. So the, the steps are, the G is get that the emotion is present and, and that it's really important and why. Identify what behaviors you're seeing that suggest the emotion or if it seems appropriate, you can even identify it and say it out loud. So it might be something like, you know, I'm noticing you're quieter than usual. Can you, you know, what's going on? Or I can see that you're really frustrated. Um, so it depends, you know, you have to use your judgment. The B is validating. And the E is exploring by um, um, often using the phrase, tell me more, um, but it could be, you know, um, tell me what's scaring you the most or whatever they shared that their emotion is. So it's just a, um, a short, but not that easy to do um, tool for how to respond to emotion when it's present. And the way I understood when I when I read the, your blog and when I was reflecting on this is just a, a reminder that we always, especially as we get older and either as parents or as leaders, we are very quick to give people suggestions either of why their predicament is not so bad or what they can do about it. And maybe we should just stop and be more curious and understanding a little bit more about why they're feeling that way and, and how they're feeling that way before we even get to any solutions. And I would imagine that in these micro check-ins, a lot of times we won't have solution. It's just the acknowledgement and support that really matters. Yeah, and you know, if you look in the vital talk work, they would argue that when you respond to the emotion, often people don't even want the answer to the original question. So, I mean, this might be an extreme example, but if, if someone says, is he gonna die, you know, that, that may be an information-seeking question, but it's often uh, an expression of a fear or some other emotion. So they would argue that if you say, this is really overwhelming and scary, you know, I, I, you've been through so much and I can understand um, feeling really terrified. You know, tell me, like, what's, tell me what's scaring you the most and like talking through it, then it may not be actually that they're seeking an answer to that exact question, although 
you know, they still might want an answer and the information is also helpful. But um, they, you know, I learned a lot about this, this concept from them. Excellent. So we started the, the shift with a, the briefing. We have been working throughout the shift and checking on our, on the nurses, on the RTs and our colleagues, doing some micro check-ins, really trying to, to, to understand how they're feeling, what are their challenges, how we can be supportive, listening. T tell us about the third component at the end of the day, the debriefing. Yeah, I guess, you know, the debriefing sort of my, maybe my little favorite part, which is just that, um, you know, I really like that the, the main emphasis of the debriefing is reflection. And, and I guess since that's what I started with, I, I sort of feel maybe um, most enthusiastic about that step because I feel like um, it provides such an important connection at the end of a day. And we, so when we did this last year in our pilot, we kept it um, fairly unscripted. Um, initially when I wrote it, I had all these different steps to include related to um, care and patient safety and the patient experience and the family experience. And ultimately we just wanted it to be a conversation guided by the people on the team. So it's it's always starts with introductions um, and um, just a quick reading. Um, and once a week, we actually, at the beginning of the week, we would start with reading um, the basic assumption, which um, is uh, sort of a fundamental philosophy promoted by the Center for Medical Simulation, which is basically, um, I'm actually, I, didn't, I don't have it right in front of me, but it's basically, um, we believe that everyone working on this team um, wants to do their best, wants to provide the best possible care for patients and wants to improve. And the reason why I would read that out loud, actually it wasn't me, it was the debriefing leader, which was our critical care social worker. They would start the week that way by saying, you know, this, it's, it's a way of saying this conversation isn't about blaming anybody or um, it's not about, trying to be perfect it's really you know a recognition that we all want the same thing which is the best care for our patients and and caring for one another and to bring out our best so that's why we're doing this conversation and then um then we would say just it would start with hey you know reactions to today and then we had a few questions that could trigger a conversation um uh that in, in case people weren't really naturally talking much on their own, which might be what helped your team work well together today? How could our work be 1% better? Um, uh, how did the shift affect you personally? But usually they just talked, um, you know, on their own. And so I think just offering a space to have reactions, um, really people will talk. And once, you know, once they kind of get in the habit, um, they are they, they'll bring up what's on their mind and it could be clinical things it could be um emotional things but people did end up talking easily um some you know some days it was a very short conversation um like three to four minutes we tried to always stop it at 10 minutes because i really don't want people to worry that they're going to be stuck in a long conversation and it really doesn't have to be long to change the culture and ultimately what, you know, I can tell you about some of the outcomes we found, but ultimately I think that 10 minute debriefing really changed the way people talk to each other the other 23 hours and 50 minutes of the day. So the steps for the debriefing was really a greeting and introductions, an invitation to speak up, 
Um, and really just a sort of a, a quick um, you know, phrase like reactions to today or um, any ideas about how we could be 1% better. Um, and in the Circle Up paper, we listed some other steps that might be listing you know, successes of the day, any ideas or action items for the future, um, expressing gratitude. So I usually would close with some gratitude or appreciation for the team's work. Um, and it was pretty loose, conversational, um, very sort of team-centered, um, to borrow a term from, you know, educational circles. Could you share with us, and Laura, a little bit of the results of the study and what you what you found as the impact of implementing Circle Up in, in your teams? Sure. So um, I'm actually in the process of analyzing the data from our study from last year. So I don't have um, much of the quantitative data yet, but um, I think that there were probably three important areas where we've seen um, where we've seen an, an impact. And first of all, I should say, so we took note in a study we did last year, we took notes um, every day of everything that they said in the debriefings. And then we also interviewed participants and had them fill out a survey. The notes are showing that more than 50% of the time, people actually used the debriefing to give each other praise and um, just appreciation for one another, which I think, you know, had a really incredible impact on the atmosphere of the team. And so what we found is in these three, um, I think these three main areas is that one, these 10 minute debriefings changed relationships and the kinds of quotes that people offered in the surveys and in the interviews were, um, I didn't know it would make people feel better just to speak issues on their mind. Um, I thought I was the only one who cared about certain things. I didn't realize other people care the same as, you know, as much as I do. Um, it was a morale booster more than I actually understood. People were looking forward to it throughout the day. Um, it changed the hierarchy. So people said, you know, I felt much more comfortable talking to people I wouldn't normally approach. And um, some of them sort of um, remarked that the four o'clock debriefings became, it, it sort of became a punitive joke. Like, if they went over to someone and said, I need to talk to you about something and then say, then they'd say, or I could just de debrief you about it at four. <laughs> and so um, it, you know, it, it just kind of, um, people would say the debriefings made them realize that, um, you know, everyone's perspective really mattered and they were able to get a much better sense of the goals of other professions and how, and the roles of other professions because they didn't necessarily realize what people were doing as much as they did once they started talking about it. The other, the second area was about process improvement. So some things might seem small, but they had a huge impact on people's day. So for example, the NPs in the unit um, were never able to tell the entire team, we need our change of shift sign out to be a protected time. Um, and then, so the nurses and the NPs, they were able to communicate to the secretaries and the doctors that they really couldn't be interrupted for a half an hour around change of shift because it, they weren't leaving on time and they felt like it wasn't an efficient and clear process of communication because they kept getting interrupted either by family or phone calls or someone else on the team. So it sounds like a small thing, but it really changed their experience at work. And then finally, even in this 
six-week intervention, which is like nothing in um, you know a clinical um, intervention, we actually had some significant clinical changes. Um, the most dramatic being that we created a brain box, kind of like an airway box, because this was a neuro ICU. So we were able to get the medications that they need for an acute elevation of an intracranial pressure um, in the unit so that these drugs, which normally were taking 25 minutes to be delivered to a patient because they'd have to put in an order and get it checked by pharmacy and get it up to the unit, they were actually able to deliver these drugs within a minute or two um, and actually just physically see the, you know, the um, pupils, the dilated pupil change or stabilize the, you know, bradycardia um, and then get the patient to the OR where they could be decompressed. So um, they were just uh, amazed that the things that they were saying that they were complaining about um, were were actually causing changes in their workplace and it made them feel a tremendous sense of agency and empowerment. Um, so they just felt more engaged in the debriefing process, but also more engaged and connected in their work. And I sense that the, the benefits of Circle Up are kind of like a dose responsive, which means that don't let perfection be the enemy of good. And when you start, it won't be perfect, but as you keep doing it and get better at it and do more of it, you probably keep reaping the benefits at a greater and greater rate, but that there's tremendous good that comes just from initiating this, even if your circle up process is not a perfect one at, at that point. Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, I think that starting any intervention can feel very awkward and daunting and um, that, you know, it, it does really help to have to start with low expectations, start with something small. Um, if I could offer a few tips to make it, I think to try some kind of interventional uh, intervention and make it successful, I would say, first of all, make sure you have a buddy in the group who knows, you know, what you're doing and, and actually having some kind of promotional messaging before you start can really help so people know what to expect and encourage. And if you have a buddy who's gonna encourage participation and enthusiasm, especially among the different professions, so like one of the unit coordinators, one of the nurses, one of the docs, uh, respiratory therapist, you can start really small, like just make sure you know the name of every person in your unit. I mean, it just feels so much better if you're walking into the unit and you know the name of the medical assistant who has been, you know, maybe not talking to you, but who's been helping your nurses for months or years. Um, again, I, as I said earlier, I think modeling vulnerability, like saying this feels awkward, I haven't done this before, but I'm willing to try it with, you know, with your support. Um, one thing we kind of learned through the process was about the physical setting um, for people. So initially, we would come together in the middle of the unit and we found that all the docs and some of the NPs were standing and all the nurses were sitting. And I think it was partly a gender thing because the nurses were women and the docs in that particular unit happened to all be men. Um, and so they were being, I think, you know, sort of like back in the 1950s chivalrous, but it was also because we, we didn't have enough chairs for everybody. So once we noticed that, and we would pull all the chairs out of the break room, everybody sat. Like once they actually had chairs, they all sat. And it really made a difference to have everyone at the same eye level and not sort of um, towering over people or just like fidgeting because they're standing, even though it's a short conversation. Um, 
And I think it's important to ask all the participants, you know, what do you think about the timing of this? Of course, they're all going to say, well, it takes time out of, you know, our busy work day, but then they'll say, but I can't think of a better time to do it. So we, we chose our time at four o'clock because the attending shift changed at, changed at five and the nursing shift changed at seven. So in order to avoid interfering with like the last minute work of the attending, we chose that time. And um, it, it worked, you know, people said, well, yeah, of course, sometimes I'm pulled away something from something I'm doing, but I can't think of a better time. And then I would say, don't assume you know what people think about it. You know, you might think people don't like it. I interviewed one neurointensivist who didn't say a single word in the first two weeks of debriefings. And I thought he seemed reluctant and I couldn't believe his overwhelming positive reaction. Like he just was blown away by how he, and he said, I never want to talk to anybody about anything. I'm like this total introvert, but I couldn't believe how much it changed the feeling of the unit and it made it so much easier for me to approach the nurses. And I think it made it easier for them to approach me. So I, I would say, don't think you know that people do or don't like it without actually trying to talk to them about it. Could you comment, uh, Laura, as a tip uh, on leveraging existing processes such as a nurse uh, morning huddle? Yeah, I mean, you'll have a lot more success if you leverage a meeting that's already happening. So, for example, if you're already doing a morning um, huddle discussing the patients, you know, quickly reviewing the patients um, for the day, you can just add an in, uh, introductions um, and make sure that people can hear each other and see each other as opposed to everyone sort of being at their own computer and mumbling. Um, so you can tweak meetings that are already happening to make them more about team connection instead of adding a whole separate thing. Are there any other tips uh, that you would give our, our listeners if they wanted to start uh, this process in their ICUs? Uh, I would say keep it short. Um, I don't. I think if you you know allow a conversation to get you know to um, drag on, it won't be embraced, and people will feel like they can't, they don't want to go because they think they're going to get sucked into a really long thing. You know, one thing that blew me away um, in our pilot was um, we never saw phones out and or people on computers, and we did not ask people to put away their electronics. That was not at all part of the you know promotional messaging or. Um, in the introduction, we never mentioned that. And in six weeks of this pilot, we only saw two people, attendings, take out their phone for just a few seconds to respond to a text. And other than that, I didn't even see a phone out. And so to me, you know, that's an amazing statement um, about, you know, their level of engagement in the process. And I think that that happened partly because, um, they were short, so you know people are, I think, willing to put away their phone and, and not be working on other work when they know the meeting's going to be short. But also, you know, I can sort of cynically add that you know, in in listening circles, people say that no one's ever really really listening to you as in, as intently as they as they do when you're talking about them. So this is a conversation about them, and I think they cared about it because. You know, there it's rare to ask a team, tell me about your day. How, you know, were there opportunities to communicate better? Was there missed information? You know, where were tell me about your successes? So I think um, you know, that uh, the audience is very captive because they care about that connection and they care about 
you know, feeling more empowered and, and, and that we were really interested in their ideas. We could talk for hours. I really find this a very, very fascinating topic, but I also want to be respectful for your time. But I do think that it's worth, uh, before we go to the closing questions, to just uh, remind uh, our listeners that innovation is not about technology. It's about finding new ways to do something better and adapt and, and adopting that in your in your practice. I think innovation has a, a big component of it is the adoption, which in your pilot and in your unit, obviously, with this circle up has been very successful. And I think that what this speaks to is the power that a five minute briefing, several check-ins during the day, and a five to 10 minute debriefing with the team and focused on them can have a tremendous impact, not only in, on the well-being of everybody working in that ICU, but ultimately what we really care about is on the safety and outcomes of our patients. Absolutely. We usually close the podcast, uh, Laura, with some questions that are unrelated uh, to the to the topic. So if, uh, if that would be okay, we can go there. Sure. The first question relates to books. Is there a book or books that have influenced you the most or that you have gifted most often to others? Uh, yes. I, um, I have to say I'm obsessed with this topic, so my books are not actually totally unrelated to this. Um, I read a lot of novels, which I'm, I'm not going to share with you, but I'm going to share with you some of my favorite books that I do um, gift and, and talk about a lot. The first is In Shock by Rama Oddish. She's a pulmonary critical care doctor in Michigan, and she's an incredible storyteller, and she um, became ill, critically ill, and she tells her own story. And it's a pretty shocking description of flaws in our system and in individuals, but she, she speaks with such humility because she recognizes that until she became a patient, she behaved in much the same way. And um, her story is riveting. And I think especially for critical care physicians, it's, it's really eye-opening. Another book that's sort of um, uh, uh, somewhat along those lines is by Danielle Ofri. She has a book called What Doctors Feel. And she's also an incredible storyteller. And she, um, what I, you know, the main thing I took from that book is that emotions are always influencing our care of patients and the empathy that we feel for them. And if we don't recognize that we have emotions and that they influence every interaction that we have, we won't feel really whole enough to offer our patients what they deserve. So I, I think that those two books should be required reading by every critical care doctor or, you know, every doctor. Absolutely. Um, I just, I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't read this before, but I just finished the book Being Mortal by Ashul Gawande. Have you read that book? I have. So I think every human should read this book, but especially every doctor. Um, I I just like it's. I mean, I wish I had written it. It's like so beautifully written, and and it captures so much of what's wrong with um, our society. So he, the first half of the book is about aging and our society treatment of the elderly, and the second half of the book is about dying and what it means to die well or really um, live well until you die. And so he discusses the most important questions that we should be asking, you know, all of us. Um, what's your sense of things? What do you fear? What are you willing to trade off to achieve your goals? What matters most? And, you know, he, it's just, it's just incredible. And, um, and then the last that, one, I'm, sorry? No, I was going to say that at the being mortal, 
what I found when I read it, uh, very, very trans transformative was the understanding the tension between providing safety to our loved ones as they age and what they really value, which is independence. Absolutely. And, and, that's and rec recognizing good. that has helped me a lot with, with family members. Yeah, that's incredible. That's a really, that's a really, um, that was a really poignant um, part of the book because, you know, what we think people, right, like what we think people value um, is safety, but it's really kind of paternalistic to assume that that, you know, that that's more important. Yep. And then the last one I would, I would really recommend if, you know, if people are really interested in, in changing the way they communicate is Humble Inquiry by Edgar Schein. And it's a really short book. It's not medical. It's he's a um, I think he was a he was a business professor, like psycho. Um, he was a, a behavioral psychology professor, um, and he says humble inquiry is the art of drawing someone out, of asking questions to which you do not already know the answer, of building a relationship based on curiosity and interest in the other person. And so, you know, if you want to apply these concepts like in Circle Up and, and actually be curious about um, and learn about the people working for you and with you, this book um, about sort of how to bring more humility into how you communicate is, is really interesting. Phenomenal. So we will link these books in the show notes. And uh, I have read uh, some of these, but definitely have not heard of Humble Inquiry. That sounds like a an interesting read, so definitely we'll we'll pick it up and let you know. The second question relates to something that you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe to be true, or at least don't act like they believe it's true. Oh uh, yeah. So I think that you know one lesson that I learned um, in life is you should do what you love. And that sounds very cliche, but I spent some time doing something I didn't love, which was working in a basic science lab for almost three years, which was just a disaster. <laughs> and I, I learned that you should not persist in doing something that isn't bringing you joy just because you fear disappointing people you respect. Because I really respected my boss and I wanted to make it work. And, you know, I think a lot of us do that and instead of really having the imagination um, or the courage to you know then shift and say you know what this isn't working for me and, and do something else um and i guess along those lines my other um lesson for life and for work is that um there really is no one best way to work uh, people need all kinds of doctors students need all kinds of teachers and I used to kind of feed my imposter syndrome because I was never one of those doctors who could quote all the current literature um, and felt like, you know, my topic wasn't sexy enough. And I now realize that I have important strengths as a teacher and as a clinician that complement the work of others. So, you know, I'm, I think that, you know, it took me a long time, maybe it took like <laughs> aging to have the maturity to realize like, it's okay if I don't have some of those strengths, I have other strengths. And so I think, you know, we, we often, you know, feel insecure or as you know, we all know about imposter syndrome because we don't kind of um, compare well to a certain standard that we think is like the best type of doctor or teacher, but we don't need to, we don't need to be that. We can be our own best. And, and, and to, to that point, I, 
I often uh, tell people and think about it myself that you should always play to your strengths, but I define my strengths not necessarily as things I do very well, those are abilities, but as things that give me joy and make me feel good about myself and my role in the world. So I, I find that that's the, the area where not only you find the greatest joy, but you also have the greatest impact. And I think it speaks directly to what you're talking about. Your strength is talking about communication, talking about debriefing, exploring team dynamics, and not necessarily working with Petri dishes and, and, and micro essays. Right. Definitely not my strength. <laughs> the, the last question, Laura, is what would you want every intensivist that listened to us today to know? Well, you just made this comment that um, I think you know, I really agree with, which is that effective critical care is much more about relationships than about technology and interventions. And, you know, I think that goes for relationships with patients and family and relationships with everyone on the team. So I would say I want every intensivist to know that conflict is literally toxic and connection matters much more than you may realize. So um, recognizing the individual means everything to that person and their family. And it also means, you know, it means a lot to the, the people working with you and for you. And I think that's a perfect place to stop. I want to thank you first for putting out such a amazing work uh, out to, to the critical care world. Uh, I hope that many of our listeners explore your, your, your article and uh, try Circle Up at that ICUs. I definitely will be pushing it uh, along our, our programs. And I also want to thank you for your time and hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound critical care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.